Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading for this week is James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. And what we are ultimately seeing in this is that the Christian church, the assembly of believers, is not to show any respect of persons. Whether someone comes in looking fancy and fine, or whether they come in looking a little bit shabby, we are supposed to treat them all the same and not become judge of evil thoughts. The King James is going to use the archaic sense of the word gay to refer to happy, colorful, and it's going to then show that just because someone comes in with happy clothing, rich clothing, fancy clothing, does not mean that they should get the best seats. We shouldn't have assigned seating where we give allow people to rent out boxes. We shouldn't have a, a different perspective when someone comes in in one way versus when someone comes in another way. Same warm welcome should be given to all. Passage reads, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiments, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a poor in a good place. And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you? And draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Good morning. 
You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Today we are looking at verses 5 to 9. This is Jesus' fourth discourse, his fourth speech within Matthew's gospel. And we've seen the introduction to it, which speaks of us pursuing the lowest status and indeed having the lowest status as Christ followers, as Christians. And that leads into this passage and what follows of compelling us to service as those who are in this lowly place, the status of little children. And so the scripture reads, Matthew 18, verse 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Father, I ask that you would help us today with help that only you can provide. Just as it is the case that we stand before you coming to pray to you and coming to worship you only because we stand in the name of Jesus, only because he has died on our behalf, so too today as we think about your word and as we try to live in submission to it, we come dependent upon you to do that change in our heart, to continue renewing the heart that you have transformed, the heart that you have changed. Lord, it is possible that there are people in this room who have never experienced you changing their heart, never experienced the new birth. And we ask, Lord, that you would work through this sermon, through the songs that have already been sung through the scripture already read, anything that we have done or will do, work through it today. Do your work amongst those whose hearts have not been changed so as to change them, and among us whose hearts have been changed to renew us and to bring us into ever greater conformity to the likeness of Christ. So, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. So what comes to your mind when you think about Christian service? Some things may have just flashed into your head. You may have thought about some people with titles, whatever those titles would be, 
serving in a particular ministry of the church, in an official aspect of service. You may have gone a little bit more informally and started thinking about the reality of Christians serving one another to meet each other's tangible needs. How if there's someone who can't drive themselves around, there are Christians who would come pick them up, take them where they need to go. All of that is indeed Christian service. And it seems that we are specifically encouraged towards this informal service. But when Jesus tells us to take upon the status of a little child, to put ourselves in the position of a servant, the primary focus of the humble service he calls us to is preserving each other in our faith, our purity, and fight against sin. It is an informal type of ministry about spiritual needs, about pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness together. True humble service, taking account for the seriousness of sin, is interested in preserving purity and love for Christ. We're going to be looking at the beginnings of that reality today in verses 5 through 9. Looking at it in two different sections. The first is verses 5 to 7. Receiving and stumbling blocks. The scripture again reads, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Verses 5 and 6 are a bit of a proverb. They're a couplet of a contrast of one thing and another. One path, the path of verse 5, leads to blessing. The other, in verse 6, leads to a woe, to judgment. And so we start by looking at the reward, the blessing, in verse 5, which comes to one who receives. Whoso shall receive. One such little child in my name receiveth me. The idea of receive could have the idea of welcome. There's certain understandings as we looked at in like John chapter 1 when we were there over Christmas of hospitality undertones. Showing a welcome to someone you don't know. Now when we think of hospitality, the, the word kind of changed just mean hosting. But realistically, when I'm trying to use this term hospitality, I'm specifically thinking about it in terms of the Bible's use of it of love for strangers, love for sojourners, love for the vulnerable. And he's talking then about receiving this welcome, the possibility of meeting tangible needs of those we don't know or those who are uh, refugees going from one place to another. 
are vulnerable in some way or another. And he says that the ones to be received are one such little child. But receiving that little child is actually receiving Jesus himself. We've seen this language before in Matthew chapter 10. Let's go ahead and turn to that passage. Make sure we know a bit of what we're working through in what Matthew, through Jesus' words, are communicating to us. This is the end of the second discourse, commonly called the mission discourse. Jesus is giving his speech after commissioning the twelve and sending them out. And he commends blessing to those who extend welcome to them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. There's the, the logic given there. If you welcome the, the, the disciples, you're welcoming the one who sent the disciples, that is Jesus. And if you welcome Jesus, you're welcoming the one who sent him, that is the Father. And he continues then saying in different ways of a, a larger class than just the original 12, if you receive a prophet because he is a prophet or in the name of a prophet, you'll receive the reward of a prophet. So too with the righteous man and even so much as just meeting the tangible need of thirst for one of the little ones in the name of a disciple. And we kind of get the impression from this passage that what is done to the least of these Jesus' brothers is done to him, as we'll see in Matthew 25, the fifth part of the fifth discourse of Matthew's what is done to the least of those who follow Christ is, in fact, actually done for Jesus. And as we turn back to Matthew 18, I think that's supposed to color our interpretation and understanding of what it means to be one such child. Even the word such seems to connect backwards to what we read and looked at last week in verses 3 to 4. All who come to understand and be Christ, all of us are insignificant. All of us are little ones in a class lowly. Verses 3 to 4 began Jesus' speech in this way. And said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's possible that the transition from actual children to disciples doesn't happen in verse 5. But if it doesn't happen in verse 5, it's certainly come into place by verse 6. The rest of this discourse is going to be about how we, as little ones, interact with one another. And ultimately pulls us to the fact that as those of socially insignificant, as ones who mean nothing, have nothing in our hands to offer to God because we are vile sinners, we are actually the untouchables. Sometimes we can have implications and understandings of how to interact with those around us, and we can have certain people that we think are too dirty to touch in some way or another. When it comes to God and his holiness, we are those people. Untouchable. Unlovable. Hostile to him and enemies. So reason Jesus interacted with tax collectors, sinners, and harlots. It's because those who weren't in those class are not any more touchable to him than anyone else. So it comes to this point of receiving one such little child. No one, whether because they're insignificant as they are children who are of the lowest class, like we talked about last week, unable to make decisions for themselves, unable to get a job in order to supply for themselves. Whether it's someone who's insignificant because they aren't to our standards of living. All of the areas of prejudice that Tom was talking about in Sunday school with race and income, class, even knowledge of scripture and things of that sort. Since we're nothing, we have no reason to turn away any of them. Since all we have is the hope of Jesus Christ, we receive them all. We welcome them all. And ultimately, when we receive one such little child in Jesus' name, we receive Jesus himself. And if we don't receive them, then we are denying and not receiving Jesus himself. The contrast to this way of getting reward for receiving is a, a woe for offending. Verse 6 starts similarly, you'll notice, to verse 5, but instead of whoso shall receive, it's who shall Whoso shall offend. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. But whoso shall offend. The warning is specifically given to those 
who would offend, or as we've also described in the past, put a stumbling block before another, who would cause someone to sin. And the warning gets to be pretty grotesque. But even that grotesque imagery is the better alternative. The actual punishment isn't told to us. Simply that the punishment is worse than this. It would be better for someone to receive that a giant millstone were hanged about his neck. Not just having the giant millstone hanged around his neck, but then having him thrust into the open water, the high seas. As he's there, struggling against the millstone that's pulling him down around his neck, trying to break free, he sinks, he sinks, and ultimately he drowns and continues sinking until he reaches the bottom. Sometimes it's easy, particularly if you're made anything like me, to have some sort of academic sense and understanding. Just finding out what the scripture means and failing to feel it. And I hope none of us are so academic in how we understand the scripture, not to note the heaviness of what is here being described. A millstone around someone's neck, leading them ever down into the high seeds. And that is the better alternative to one who causes an offense to one of these little ones which believe in Jesus. In light of how grotesque that imagery is, in light of how much we all should want to avoid that, we need to pause and understand what it means to offend one of these little ones. And it's already been kind of highlighted to us in that it's a contrast to receiving. It's a contrast to welcoming. But it is significantly also so much more. We've interacted with the word at other times in Matthew. We've regularly talked about how it could be properly understood and translated as offense, as a stumbling block, as causing someone to sin, as causing them to lose their way in some way or form. And indeed, we've seen it twice rather recently in the lead up to this discourse and this speech of Jesus. Matthew 16 Verses 21 to 23. Let's read there. As we've spent a lot of time reading this passage, as it is transitional to at least the narrative section, and possibly for most of uh, Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus begins plainly telling the disciples what the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, means for what he's going to do. We read in Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So here Peter is called the offense, the scandal, the stumbling block. Why is he the offense, scandal, and stumbling block? Because Jesus has announced his mission that he's received from the Father to die for our sins and be raised again so that we can have new life by believing in him, by having faith and repentance. And Peter's response is no. Far be it. May God make that never be so. He, can, he will be more gracious to you than that. This shall not be. It's a temptation, a, a stumbling block that would prevent Jesus, if you were to listen to it, from fulfilling the mission of continuing in obedience to his father, and ultimately, if Jesus were to listen to Peter, it would cause us not to have reason to be here today. But Jesus doesn't. He continues to endure the shame and push himself, setting his face to Jerusalem, determined to die for us. But then it's Jesus who's taking pains not to put a stumbling block before another in Matthew chapter 17. We remember the context in verses 24 to 27 that there's this tax that Jesus is not obligated to pay because he's not a stranger with God, but the Son. But even the Israelite males, even people like David who called himself a stranger with God, as being in a separate class of, well, nobodies, just like us, just like everyone else. But Jesus is not in that class. He is free and will make others free, paying the debts for them. This is what he says. Verse 27 of Matthew 17 Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast a hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take 
and give unto them for me and thee. Notwithstanding, sir, I don't have to pay the tax. I'm free from it. But Jesus says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, lest we should scandalize them, lest we should put a stumbling block before them, we're going to pay this fee. And it seems that here, there's not a danger of a stumbling block that would cause someone to veer into sin. But a stumbling block that would cause someone to say, I will reject this person who thinks he's this much above the temple. That the stumbling block and scandal and offense that he's worried about, that Jesus is intentionally not putting before them, is just a stumbling block that would harm their faith, their possibility of conversion, their possibility of accepting Jesus. It seems based off of these uses alone that the idea of a stumbling block is anything that could hinder faith and obedience, which could certainly involve enticing someone to sin, but it could also involve hostility towards another. Talk about the church that's persecuted throughout the world, those who are persecuting the church are causing offense to them. But we can be hostile or rude to people too, and possibly turn them off following Jesus. Laying too much of a burden upon them that, as Paul would say in Acts 15, neither we nor our fathers are able to bear, that could be something that causes someone to stumble. A unscriptural command that we then require, even though so much is a, a failure to rebuke someone who's living in blatant sin, could be putting a stumbling block before them. R.T. Franz also emphasizes and interprets this broadly, and he adds the possibilities of this. To lead a person into sin is one means of causing them to stumble, but their life and development as disciples may equally be damaged by discouragement or unfair criticism, by a lack of pastoral care, or by the failure to forgive, which will be highlighted in verses 21 to 35. The despising of the little ones in verse 10 is the attitude which promotes such damaging behavior towards them. call of Jesus, of the Jesus who is not ashamed to call us brothers, is to not do anything other than extend welcome to those who would come. To push to everyone, whether we like them or not, whether they're of the right status or not, whether they interact in the way we want them to or not, to push everyone to faith, to bring them and point them to Christ, to welcome them and receive them and not put anything in their way. Even if the thing that we're doing is in itself sinful, to spend our lives intentionally trying to encourage the faith, encourage the obedience of others, not to discourage.
There's a, a pastor in the uh, pastor's fellowship that meets monthly who's only been at his church uh, uh, about a year at this point. He has a, a situation where he intentionally will wear a suit for Communion Sunday and not wear a suit any other day, any other Sunday. And in both of those endeavors about that silly thing that's neither sinful nor not one way or the other is his idea of trying not to lay a stumbling block before anyone. He knows that there are some of my generation or even the generation above me who find suits intimidating and threatening. So he doesn't want to regularly be wearing a suit and scaring them off. He doesn't want to put that as a stumbling block before them. And he also knows that there are people, that there are individuals of a, an older generation than that, who would have it as a stumbling block before them if the pastor wasn't wearing a suit while working through communion, giving out the elements and serving in that capacity. And so he's thought through this small area in regard to not put a stumbling block. Even though he wouldn't be sitting by wearing a suit or sitting by not wearing a suit. That's the type of mindset that Jesus seems to encourage us to have in verses 5 to 6. To receive little children, to welcome them, and to do what we can to encourage the faith of all those who are or might be believers in Jesus Christ. To continue to bring them to God's grace and not place any undue burden upon them. And he continues to look at the woe for those who would cause a stumbling block, who would scandalize. And he says in verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Woe unto the world because of offenses. That's the world in general. That includes everyone in this room needing to be on guard because offenses, stumbling blocks, scandals exist. Indeed, it must needs be that offenses come. It is necessary, it is going to happen that there are offenses in this world. Cursed by sin as it is. We can rightly sit back and say, haste the day when our faith will be made sight. Haste the day when we don't have to tread carefully because the world is filled with things that could be stumbling blocks to us. To cause us to lose faith or lose our way in obedience. Living with faith within this world is not easy. The world is full of stumbling blocks upon which we can stumble. 
Another thing that be easy for us to do when we hear about the world being filled with stumbling blocks is to immediately start thinking about our pet peeves in society that we don't appreciate. Well, certainly some of them are stumbling blocks because they're unbiblical things. The rise of the sexual revolution in the 60s, the continuation of that into the comments about the LGBTQ agenda, but ultimately, when we think about the world being full of stumbling blocks, we need to think a lot more broadly than that. Because since the founding of Western society, it's always been a blend of Christian interests, Christian principles, and unworldly, ungodly, worldly, sinful human nature. In American culture specifically, we can see that from the very beginning that we are based off the idea of individualism and consumerism. The capitalism that is a good thing has some unbiblical ideas within it about individualisticness, about consumerism, that ultimately cause us to think all about me, 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 and so as a stumbling block to obeying love for God and love for others. That's a very real example of something that's just in the very air that we breathe. We think normal and could stumble upon. We must tread carefully in the world, paying more attention to the Bible than the influences around us, even the ones that have always been around us. But then Jesus goes back, Woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Yes, it is necessary that there are offenses in the world, but it is still a woe to be the one by whom that offense cometh. There is still the reality of being careful what we do and how we relate to one another. All of what we're saying is encouraged by the call to personal holiness in verses 8 to 9, that being holy is necessary, let me read that for us. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. It's ultimately based off of the fact that there is a great treasure to be found in Jesus Christ, that he himself is the treasure. He's not bringing us into something new. He is the something beautiful to have as an end of himself. 
which also means that we want to encourage those around us to come to him as well. That we want that to be our acting principle in how we live and think in the world, not to cause someone to stumble unintentionally, but to receive them and encourage them to faith. Because ultimately, all we have in our hands is Jesus. All we have as a basis for hope in life and death is that we are not our alone, but belong body and soul to God. Because Christ redeemed us by his blood, and we have accepted him. We are nobodies living for Jesus. We are nobodies, insignificant little ones who want to bring other little ones to the Son, the exclusive Son, the only one who is somebody and was somebody in this world. Let's remember the gospel of our salvation. Let's remember it as we remember in the Lord's Supper all of the greatness and beauty all that he has done for us and is doing for us. And let us be sure to receive in his name rather than stumble, rather than to mistreat him by mistreating one of his. Father, I ask that you would guide us today as we continue to think through these things, direct our paths unto you. Direct our paths to obey, to have faith in you. And may it be our goal as disciples of Christ, making disciples of Christ, to lead people and encourage people in faith and obedience, to lead on the narrow path. Lord, I, I thank you for the time that we've had to look at your word. And I ask that you would continue to lead us in worship and continue to cause us to rejoice in you. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>